Welcome back everybody to another episode of the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast with your host, myself, Alex Connor, talking everything training, nutrition and lifestyle collectively. This is episode 51. Before we kick off, just a quick thank you to all of you who have supported the podcast from day one and continue to do so. I really appreciate it. I'm super grateful and it means a lot. Let's continue to spread the good word. My guest today is a good friend and fellow coach, Josh Hampson from Hold Your Own. Me and Josh met some years ago now and he has been tremendous support over the years and a wealth of knowledge, especially with my own coaching journey and education to date. He's always someone who keeps me grounded and centered and is a consistent reminder to utilize what are the best, which are the basics when it comes to protocols and education and not overthinking things too. And in this episode today, as always, we get to unpack his journey and have a look at some of his biggest lessons learned to date and draw from his experiences to share the knowledge and better help you guys with your own journeys as always too. And a quick reminder just before we dive in, the Fearless Training United Academy is as always live. It is the Netflix of fitness, $10 a week to subscribe. You can cancel anytime and there's a plethora of knowledge at your fingertips anywhere in the world on demand. Of course, Leave a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or comment and subscribe on YouTube. It helps the channel grow, and if it's safe to do so, please go and do it now. It's a two-minute job, if that, and I really appreciate it. All right, team, without further ado, let's get into it. Enjoy my conversation this week with Mr. Josh Hampson. Josh, welcome to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast, my friend. How are you this morning? Good, thank you. I'm good. I, I uh, appreciate you making the time. I think this one's been a, a long time coming, fair to say. Mm-hmm, definitely. So for the people who may be unaware, as always, let's start at the beginning. Give us a bit of a synopsis, a bit of a background of who you are, what you do, and more importantly, why you do it. Um, well, I guess from a physical standpoint, I always was active during school. Um, I'd always go to the gym and things like that as a part of sports. Um, and I've always enjoyed it, but it was never really a priority. Um, when I finished school, I then organized sport kind of dropped off a little bit. I still wanted to stay active. So I started going to a gym. Um, I started training for, well, I guess, bodybuilding, just generic bodybuilding, wanted to look big. Um, then it just so happened that the gym owner at the time he was competing in bodybuilding and he kind of saw me um and this was in my teenage years and he kind of convinced me to do my first show uh, and that's kind of what started uh what what's become of now um so i guess i competed a few times when i was a teenager did all right um and i guess the reason why i continued with it was because i did all right um and all the while I was doing this, I was studying at university, doing my uh, chemical and food engineering degree. I was always interested in nutrition and food and, and what, compro- what, what made up food and what um, nutrition did to the body, um, but kind of came from the engineering side as well, being very mathematical and, and uh, logical and methodically based. Um, so then I guess as, as I went on, I graduated, 
Um, the year I graduated was probably the, my biggest year competing. Um, that was the year that I went to America to compete in the Natural Olympia uh, and did a few shows around there, did quite well that year. Um, and also then, as I graduated, I actually did my um, ISSN nutrition exam and course, um, and also became ASCA accredited um, and started coaching out of Hold Your Own. Um, so I'm still coaching as a Hold Your Own coach um, through an online basis, um, but I'm also working full time as a engineer. Um, so I always love to coach on the side. It's something I enjoy doing and fun to me. I love to see people's progress and, and help them, you know, get to their goals and improve their training and nutrition and, and physique and, and just how they're feeling in general. So I guess my whole approach being an engineer as well is to have a holistic view and try and simplify things as much as possible. Because obviously a lot of people I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis don't particularly have a lot of time or don't think they have a lot of time to train, you know, or track their food or meal prep or anything like that. So I guess I take a standpoint from trying to be able to incorporate those people and improve their, their well-being and health um, at the same time as, you know, continuing to focus on their career. Um, so, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Well, that was a good, that was a good synopsis. And there's quite a few key points I want to delve into across the conversation. But I want to start at the beginning where you referenced, you know, you first started lifting weights when you were going through the sort of natural Olympia stages, but right back at the beginning, when you started your training, you, you mentioned that you, you know, you wanted to get big. That's why a lot of us start training. You want to put on some size. We want to look better in the mirror, et cetera. Was there a certain specific person or a group of people that initially was the protagonist for you to get into it? Or was this something that just came from an internal enjoyment of, Oh, I've just started lifting weights and I like the way I look and feel doing this. And what did that look like in terms of, we know that you've got now a very holistic and balanced approach, which we've talked about and we'll talk a lot more about, but were you very much like that from the beginning? Are you very analytical, were you very methodical, looking at it from the science-based brain, or were you very much a, a bit of a bro? Give us a bit of a, a definition um, of what that yeah. was. Um, I guess when I first started, I'm very self-driven, I guess you'd say. I don't really get motivated by external factors or people. Um, that might be a positive or a negative, depending on how you look at it. Um, but, yeah, so I, I just started training just because I purely like to be active. I like to be strong. I like to be athletic. Um, there was no other driving factor behind it, really. Um, and I want to say I was a little bit of a bro to start with. My first season competing, I was definitely a bro. I was eating the broccoli and fish, you know, every meal, six times a day, every two hours, you know, training everything once a week. Da, 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 da. Um, but after that first season, the analytical side kind of kicked in. Um, that's also when I started coaching underneath Nathan Wallace and Holly Jones. Um, he kind of introduced me to macronutrients and things like that. And then once he introduced me, I kind of just took it myself and, and ran with it. Um, I've actually still got spreadsheets that are thousands of lines long tracking my progress um, through my off seasons and through my contest preps. I've got charts tracking out body weight and calories and, and body fat measurements. I think you've probably seen some of them before. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely was very one to look at every single factor 
and try and control everything I could control. Um, and that was probably a little bit before my holistic approach to bodybuilding. I didn't really have anything else going on. So I put my everything into it. Um, but that's kind of shifted now, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And we'll, we'll sort of get onto that, you know, evolution, if you will, to where you are now. But before we do, so from where you were, you know, obviously I have seen some of those spreadsheets and again, you, you know, you're very internally motivated, you're very consistent. That's something that I've always noticed, very calm, cool and collected, which I think looking back, we can see why that served you well and still does. And perhaps that was what kept you or perhaps brought that success in the, those earlier years, if you will. Can you talk us through the process of making a decision to compete and then that journey of competing and then actually getting to the Olympia stage. And is that something that you ever envisioned that you would do when you started lifting or was it something that snowballed very fast? And then um, we'll, we'll sort of break down that journey a little bit more, but yeah, first give us that initial insight to, you know, reaching the Olympia stage. Yeah. So I guess, I guess the first time I competed, I had zero expectations. Um, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I, just got convinced and I thought, you know, why not? I'm training. I'll give it a crack. Um, and I never, I'll never forget that first year competing. Um, I got, I got there backstage. Um, I was all tanned up. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I'd been practicing posing for maybe like three weeks. I was nervous as hell. Um, and I, I remember seeing this guy who I'm still good friends with today, um, who was huge. He was huge. And he was lean. And I, I said to the guy that was kind of helping me and coaching me at the time, I said, oh, I hope he's not in the teenage category. And he ended up being right next to me on the teenage stage and absolutely wiping the floor with everyone. From that moment on, I came second to him. From that moment on, I was hooked. And I kind of said to myself, I need to be better than him. Um, then I guess from there, it just kind of progressed. I took my training more seriously, took my nutrition more seriously. Um, I started asking him questions and kind of befriending him. And that's how I kind of found Nathan Wallace, um, which then became Hold Your Own. Um, then I guess once I started coaching underneath Nathan Wallace, that's probably when things really started to kick off. Um, I competed for a second time in teams. So I went back to back years. Um, probably what not year a, was this? Uh, I think this was 2012 and 2013. Right. Um, it probably wasn't a great idea to go back to back, but I said to Nathan when I joined with him, look, I really want to come back and I want to win. Um, I'm someone who's very competitive, um, but I'm not a sore loser, so that's okay. Um, but I do like to win. I do like to do everything I can to win. Um, and so when I, when I started with Nathan, we started taking things very seriously. I put a lot of time and effort into the gym and my nutrition and everything like that. Um, and I came back that next year and team that I won, um, which was great. And then I guess from then on, I got a taste of victory and I wanted to keep going. Um, so I then took a year off um, and just trained consistently, tried to progress as much as possible. Um, then I competed again in 2015 when I was a junior. So my last year of juniors. Um, and my goal that year was to win the Queensland junior title and to win the national junior title and to also travel over to the Olympia and win the junior Olympia title. Um, 
I also competed in a few men's categories throughout the way, but I didn't really have many expectations for that. Um, but 2015 was a really good year. So I managed to achieve everything that I wanted to achieve. So I, I won the Queensland title in juniors and in my men's category and then actually won the overall, which was very surprising for me. Um, then I went to nationals and I won my junior and men's category at nationals. Um, then I went over to the States and I won my junior category in the States. And I think that came from memory. I think I came third. Jeez, it was a while ago now. Yeah, I came third in my men's category at the Olympia as well. Um, and that was kind of the epitome of, of where I reached, I guess. I think after that season, because I had achieved everything I wanted to, um, I kind of ticked that box off in my head, um, so to speak. So I haven't competed since. I've still been training, still love training. Um, but I guess from that bodybuilding standpoint, I gave that, that season everything I had. And I'm kind of from the mentality that if I can't better or give exactly the same again, I'm not going to meet again, especially since that I did tick off everything I wanted to achieve. Um, so that was 2015 was probably the biggest year. And that year I prepped for, I think it was around 30, 35 weeks in total. Um, the gap between my first and last show, I think, was about eight or 10 weeks. So it was quite, quite a long draining prep. Um, and by the end of it, I was definitely ready to just enjoy myself and relax for a little bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, mate, you're still a beast. You know what I mean? Still killing it. Uh, I wonder if we'll see you grace the stage one day in the future. But it is important. I think it's a good key point that you made there at the end in terms of, you know, if you're not willing to give the same as you did last time or if you don't have that same hunger and drive, especially for those who have competed, will know and be able to relate. It really does take everything. It's it, This is something, one of many things at the pinnacle in life where you, you just can't half-arse it. And if yeah. you do, you're doing yourself an injustice. And also, you know, because it's a very selfish sport, a lot of those around you as well. Yeah. Before we digress, though, I think it would be important for the listeners if we could perhaps contrast what you changed when you started with Nathan or even those first seasons from a net mechanistic and a pragmatic standpoint in terms of, you know, what was your training before versus after, like the main differences and identifying, was it just the attitude of, okay, it wasn't really too much maybe with, you know, changing massive things, but it might've been of, you know, the intensity, the passion, the drive, the focus. But if there were things, you know, with nutrition and training that you did more intelligently to take your physique to that next level, if you want to bullet point those, what would, what would they have been? Yeah. Um, okay. So we'll start with nutrition. So I guess, the main difference would have been taking a view of calories in versus calories out um, and then breaking that down to macronutrients. Um, so first season competing, um, definitely no sort of macronutrient tracking or knowing my calorie. Um, and we just went from here to here straight away um, in terms of calorie consumption. Um, so there was no, no room to move along um, there was cheat days um, along the way in that first prep. And then I guess when you look at my main prep in 2015, we took a very stepwise approach and, and trying to start from the highest point of calorific intake as possible and then gradually bringing that down throughout the course of my prep to be able to kind of efficiently lose the body fat I needed to lose without reaching a plateau point and having no room to move, I guess. Um, 
another stand, another difference from that kind of fat loss point of view was that in my very first prep, I was doing steady state, low intensity cardio, you know, probably an hour a day of walking or whatever it might be. And then compare that to the 2015 prep, that's when we started to introduce hits. So intervals of, you know, say 30 seconds on, two minutes off of, you know, hill sprints or rowing or whatever it may be. Um, and incorporating that to try and maintain as much lean muscle mass as possible um, and use the activity for calorie burning rather than just activity. Um, so they're probably the two main differences from nutrition and I guess fat loss standpoint. From training, um, first prep, I was probably training everything once a week, so, you know, doing a typical bro, spit, bro split, so like chest, shoulders, arms, back, legs. Um, and no real structure to the sessions, just kind of go in, you know, do sets of eight to 12 and then leave. Um, whereas in 2015, there's definitely a big structure around um, hitting every muscle group at least twice a week. Some of my weaker points up to three times a week. Um, and definitely having a structure in, around the aspect of having some heavier, higher percentage days and then some lower percentage, higher rep kind of days, um, just to kind of undulate that program. So there weren't as many sticking points throughout the, throughout the prep. Um, that was also when I started using Recomposer, which is a software that, that us at Hold Your Own use and, and quite a few other coaches in the industry use now, um, where you keep track of you know, previous PBs and previous sets and reps and weights and things like that. So there's always that kind of goal to try and Hit, hit a new rep or hit a new PB or a new weight. Um, so I guess it was also a mental standpoint of, of trying to really push the envelope every session. Um, but yeah, there were the main key differences. So I guess tracking my nutrition, doing different form of cardio, and then also actually tracking my training. They were they're the three key main differences, I guess. Um, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's a good summary. I think it's important to kind of distinguish that. And it's really helpful for a lot of people listening, depending on where they're at in their journey to be able to sometimes just reference that, not take it as a gospel, but to see, you know, that progression and that evolution, if you like, of, you know, where you start sometimes and how by changing the little mechanistic aspects can make all of the difference. Can we talk about what your mindset was after competing at the pinnacle after Olympia, perhaps talking about the reverse diet and what was going on mentally, and then where you were sort of setting goals or taking things after that, you said, obviously, that, you know, you, you ticked all the boxes, which were great, you sort of transitioned more into coaching. Were there any other things that you thought, hey, like, I'm just gonna, you know, I really just want to focus on like giving it back to people now and helping? Or was this when you started to, you know, transition into more of the food engineering aspects? And and then we might start to talk about the introduction of powerlifting and, and how that has perhaps, you know, influenced your, your training, if you like. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. After that 2015, I was, I was stuck. I was exhausted. Um, I was mentally drained. Um, it was a great season. I had a great time, but I, I, was, I was done. <laughs> um, I guess immediately after the show, I actually traveled around America for a little bit with my family. So the reverse diet was challenging, um, but I kind of, every prep, I kind of had the standpoint of, and knowing my body as well, 
I sit quite comfortably at a certain weight. Um, and that's where my hormones seem to function well. I feel good. I have energy. I'm not lethargic. So I don't really mind, to a certain extent, how fast I get back to that weight. Um, but obviously within reason, I don't want to get there within a week. But I think our holiday around America was two to three weeks after the show. Um, and I kind of said to myself, if I can come back to Australia in three or four weeks' time and be about my comfortable weight, which was, I think, gaining... I think it was six kilos for six kilos over three or four weeks. Um, I was okay with that. And then I take my reverse diet a little bit more seriously once I'm back in Australia. Um, once I was back in Australia, then yeah, I started to really track things again and get back on track and gradually gain some weight. So I think over that 2015 prep, I lost a total of 12, 13 kilos. Um, and then I, I eventually put that all back on, but that was over kind of a six month period. So I did take it quite nice and slowly. Um, in terms of goal setting and where I kind of wanted to go, um, I came back and started training as per normal, you know, bodybuilding, you know, doing all the normal things I was doing before during my prep. And after, say, probably a month or so, I just really didn't have the drive or passion to, to train. I did, it was just getting boring for me. Um, I just didn't really want to keep doing the same sort of things. And that's when I actually did a bit of a stint and did some CrossFit stuff, um, which was just a bit of a change, a bit of a change of scenery, a um, bit of change of style, um, and a bit more activity, I guess, and a bit more of a social aspect. Um, so I did that for a little bit, which was great, good fun, um, but obviously it's not, not where my original passion was. Um, so then I kind of shifted back into that bodybuilding style training um, but getting a bit more focused around strength um, and looking at increasing my squat, bench, and deadlift as much as as much as possible, and getting as strong as possible, and focusing my training around that. Um, I have since competed in a powerlifting competition, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. But I guess that's that's where my training kind of led to is more of that strength aspect rather than visual bodybuilding gains, I guess. Um, yeah, but definitely after that 2015 season, it, it made me reevaluate a lot of things. I did shift into coaching people then, um, and then also wanted to get into my field of chemical and food engineering. Um, I erred more towards the side of the food aspect just because I was you know, looking at nutrition every day for, for clients and for myself. Um, and I managed to get a job here based on the Gulf Coast. Um, developing food products, which is quite exciting. Um, so then I started, you know, working full time as a technologist in the food industry and then coaching people on the side, um, which was a really good combination. It kind of best of both worlds. So I would have my clients on, you know, Saturdays and Sundays and also online um, on the weekends and then work my, you know, nine to five during the Monday to Friday. Um, and it was a really good balance. So a bit of both. Yeah, it's it's quite the hybrid that you had there for a while, or, or still do have in in many ways, and I think that's a really good, you know, segue into talking about you know coaching, and even taking the lessons that you learned from your time, not just competing, but even just training as well through those early years, and then transitioning it into now coaching people. So what I want to know, Josh, is from your experience, what have been if we could extrapolate some of the again the main points for the listeners. 
the main lessons learned from your own experience training on stage in the gym, etc., um, and how that's correlated and and giving you the ability to empathize with the clients that you coach. And could you give us a ratio, for example, is it mostly comp prep clients that you coach these days? Have you got a bit of a 50-50 balance between gem pop? You've you got some power lifters in there too. And, and then we'll sort of transition into a few more specific questions on that. But first, I just want to sort of extrapolate the, the main things that you can draw from your own experience, which allows you to help your own clients. Um, I guess I guess the main thing that I've kind of realized over the years is back when I was competing in 2015, everything I did was competing. And I guess I'd classify myself as an athlete um, during that period. And everything in my life revolved around being that athlete. Um, I guess as time has shifted, not everyone has the luxury to be an athlete or compete at a high level or have goals to compete at a high level. Um, and I guess that's over time has shifted for me as well in not particularly having goals to compete at a super, super high level like I was, but having a bit more of a holistic view. Um, I think that's been the biggest shift in mindset for myself and also being able to coach people who don't necessarily always want to compete. They want to be healthy. They want to improve their lifestyle is being able to relate to them and relate to both sides of the camp. So the people that want to be healthy and have a holistic lifestyle, but also the people who want to really push the envelope in their sport. I've kind of been on both sides of that. So I, can't, I know how to approach them and structure their training or nutrition to suit what their, their needs are. Because um, there's definitely different needs when you're coaching someone who's working you know, 60 hours a week and someone who's training 60 hours a week. Um, there's very different approaches for both of them. And I think that's been my biggest learning over the last few years. Um, and I guess in terms of my split for clients, it's probably 50-50 um, from gen pop wanting to get healthier, get stronger, just improve their lifestyle, lose some weight, um, and people who are athletes and, and wanting to compete, whether it be in bodybuilding or powerlifting. Um, I've, I've had, obviously, you know, my fiance, she's quite a good powerlifter. I coached her myself and, and her focus was around that athletic standpoint putting everything she could into being an athlete. Um, and then I have some clients who, you know, work 60 hours a week and have time to train for 45 minutes three times a week and that's all they can fit in. And we still need to try and structure the way that they can fit that into their lifestyle and make progress. Um, so I think that's, that's the thing I enjoy most about coaching is everyone's so different. Um, and there's lots of different nuances with every single client. Um, and I guess coming from that, 2015 season to now, I feel like I can you know, incorporate everyone into my clientele and, and, and help everyone to their specific needs. Yeah, no, for sure. And it will definitely talk more about the powerlifting and, you know, we can touch base on Selena's successes as well. Cause that's, that's a really interesting segue. I'd love to actually have a conversation with her at one point. The, I think now perhaps then with that in mind, because you're now doing mostly online coaching and perhaps again, you'll still do one-on-one -on -one where you can in the future, depending on how things transition. 
And obviously you've been, you know, a great support and a role model for me over the years. How have you found the challenge of in-person coaching versus online? And you've obviously got experience for a number of years at both, but what do you think are the main differences apart from the obvious and the things that you have to change and perhaps really, as you said, nuance a little bit more when you are dealing with an online client and really incorporating what you just went over, which is that specificity, like you said, someone who is in campaign or has life scenario A is going to be very, very different to coaching someone in life scenario B. They might have similar goals, but obviously that journey, that plan, that protocol may look very different. Something that I've learned from you is setting expectations. I know that's something we've chatted about a lot, about you know yeah. relaying it to the client and being very clear on what the expectations are, what the pros and cons are, giving the client the power to make that decision so there's no comebacks. I think that's really valuable. So perhaps you could sort of talk more along those lines and some of those, I guess, verbiages that you have um, in terms of communication between an online and an in-person client. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely some differences between online coaching and face-to-face -face coaching. Um, for me, online coaching is definitely more difficult. Um, it's hard to kind of get that, you know, personable relationship. Um, but obviously you can build that over time. But I think, I think the main difference between online and face-to-face -face is that ability to explain and demonstrate, whether it be exercises or tracking food or anything like that, um, it, it just makes it an additional effort to explain and make sure that they understand. Um, I think another big difference for online coaching is the ability to get information out of the client. Um, quite often, if whether or not you're doing a Skype call or you know an email or whatever it might be, it can be sometimes quite hard to get information out of the client, um, whether, whether or not they're holding back information that they you know didn't follow their diet that week or they don't go into a full explanation of how their sleep was or how much water they've had or know their hormonal cycle or anything like that it can be a lot more difficult to get that out of someone online than it is face to face um, and that's a big that's something that I've noticed over the, over the time so I guess whether or not everyone will have different approaches to kind of pull that information out of clients but that's something that people coming into the industry I think definitely need to try and look at and structure their check-ins with their clients well to be efficient because um, that's something else that I've noticed is online check-ins can be very inefficient. Um, there can be a lot of back and forth if you're using email. It can be quite frustrating for both yourself and the client. Um, so yeah, there's definitely there definitely needs to be ways that you structure your check-ins for online um, a lot more clearly and concisely than if you're doing a face-to-face. -face. Um, if you're having a face-to-face check-in, it's a lot easier to you know sit down there with the client discuss things, ask for follow-up questions, um, which can be answered there and then rather than waiting, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes for another email if that's your route of online check-ins. Um, so I definitely think online coaching is more better, oh, sorry, face-to-face -face coaching is definitely more beneficial if, if that's available. Um, but online coaching, the way we're moving, you know, doing Skype calls for check-ins and Zooms like this, definitely helps the situation. Um, I think one, like you just said there, though, one big similarity, whether it's online, face-to-face, -face, 
whatever type of coaching you're getting is the coach needs to set realistic expectations with the client from the get-go. So you need to get clear and concise goals from the client, if possible. Some people don't know what their goals are, um, but I think you need to help try and guide them to get those goals. And then you can create a realistic expectation with the client so you're both on the same page um, because that can make a lot of frustration down the track if the client thinks one thing and you think another thing and there's a big gap and to bridge that gap can cause a lot of mess. Um, so if you just create that understanding and expectation from the get-go, that makes it a lot easier. And I know we've talked about that before as well. Um, and and sometimes you've just got to you got to be the hard one. And, and if if you don't agree with the client or the client doesn't agree with you, is just saying, well, this is this is what I believe is achievable. And if that's not in line with your goals or your expectations, then maybe this won't work. Because um, I would much rather let a client go because we're not on the same page than take a client's money and then six months down the track, they get annoyed and then everything ends poorly. I would lo I'd rather from the very start, you know, say, hey, look, if we're on the same page, great, let's do this. But if we're not, then maybe, maybe we're not going to be the right fit for each other. Um, because I am very from that holistic standpoint and I don't want other aspects of their life to suffer to achieve their physical goals because they don't have to to a certain extent. Um, and I know we've just discussed this a lot um, over the last 12 months or so. Um, but yeah, I definitely prefer face-to-face -face coaching. It's a lot more fun, a lot more interactive, um, definitely more enjoyable. And you feel like the client gets a bit more out of it as well. Yeah, that's I'll, I'll second that one. I think, you know, like you said, it's something we talk about a lot, but I think, I believe, I should say, that this is an area which doesn't get enough attention, hence why, you know, and I always say this, it's training, nutrition, lifestyle, but I'm like, guys, like the lifestyle is the the hidden gem in all of that because what happens in your lifestyle is the direct correlation to your success in training and nutrition. And I don't think it gets enough attention. I don't think it gets enough respect. Yeah. And um, I just think in, in, in that trifecta, it's a little bit neglected and hence why, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing and, and speaking to people like yourself to kind of highlight that a little bit more in person. It, it, it is, it, you just can't beat it. You never will be able to beat it. I don't think, I mean, you can still achieve great successes online. I think it comes down to the attitude and the skill set of the individual, because some people just have that ability to understand things very, um, you know, in a much more plausible way and an applicable way. And they're also very self-motivated and you sort of, you start to sort of profile people, although people are very different. You'll sort of, you'll see trends, but I think those key points are really important, especially for young coaches, coaches listening in general, and even people who are being coached online, maybe just things to have a lookout for and things to keep in mind in, in alignment to that. What are some of the, tools that are most valuable to you as a coach you've mentioned recomp for those familiar it's a phenomenal system it's nice because it keeps everything really you know organized from my experience but you are a king of spreadsheets you're very good with the excel spreadsheets you're very analytical you're very methodical what are some of the other key resources which have helped you or perhaps that you would recommend 
for people listening, even if they just want to create spreadsheets for their own training? They might not be coaches. They might just be people who have an interest in keeping tabs on things in a more succinct way, or even for coaches out there that you know may want to use Recomp or might not be afford be able to afford it, or they don't have the qualification. What are some things that you think are key resources? And this also, Josh, could be educational content. It could be blogs, articles, podcasts, whatever that you found to be useful um, for sharpening the sword of your craft, if you will. Um, look, I'm probably not the best one to answer this question, to be quite honest. Um, but look, yeah, I, I love Recomposer. I mean, it's, it's a great software. Um, I've been using it basically the whole time that I've been coaching people. Um, it's very compact, very efficient. You can load all the programs and exercises and foods um, in there. You can load their you know, measurements, their body fat, their weight. It, it generates graphs and everything like that for you. So it's very efficient. But obviously, if, if people can't have access to that, spreadsheets are definitely a really good, simple thing to do. Um, and I know this might not help many, but a simple Google of how to do stuff in Excel is probably the best answer you're going to get. Um, if there's ever anything that I don't know how to do in Excel, I'll just simply Google it and hey presto, there's the answer. Um, but no, just Excel is definitely a really good one. Um, I mean, you can create new tabs, you can create new rows, new columns. Um, you can create easy things for your clients to input and send you every week. Um, you know, a simple one-page spreadsheet could have you know, how they slept, how was their consistency on their diet, their daily weight, you know, how their training was, and that and that's that's a really good place to start for a client. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I'm not not uh, the best to ask for that one, Alex. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, honestly, it was more just your opinion you know what i mean it's it's not uh we're not looking for any specific answers whatever they mean to you and look i know you've been using recomp for a long time and it is is a great system i think as well everyone learns differently i guess so what might help me might not help you um so i'm a bit reluctant to give out you know specific resources on, on what's you know what's helped me along the way I definitely think that actually one, one key thing that I think is critical for not only clients, but for coaches to learn and understand is how to read nutritional labels. Um, and you can find that on, you know, the Pizan's website, um, Australian website, um, nutrition um, and the database there. It's very critical to understand nutritional panels and ingredient listings. So you know what you're putting in your body. If you don't know what you're putting in your body, then how can you expect to get leaner or gain weight or whatever it might be? Um, so I definitely recommend as that's something critical for, for coaches and clients to learn and understand and be able to explain easily. Yeah, no, that is, I think, a, a key point. It, something simplest, simple that is overlooked as well. The, it's very easy to get confused and misread little things like that. And when it comes to programming, oftentimes by learning and trying different things over the years, different systems, creating your own spreadsheets, regardless of whether you stick with them or not, are really, really valuable because you actually start to understand as you develop as a coach and as an athlete, what you want to track specifically, 
you've got your key measurables, you've got your key bits of data in there, but you might go, oh, I like it visually this way, or I really like to track this metric, or I've got a way of doing it this way. And I know that's something that I'm continuously refining, although perhaps using frameworks from other coaches and, you know, em- employing the roles of, you know, great trainers and athletes to help create these programs, but then making, you know, my own spin on it in a way that works more efficiently for me, but then getting yeah. the client feedback because a, a key thing that I find is, is obstacles. The easier it is for a client the more you are likely to engage them in adherence, the more difficult it is to fill out your programming, to get access to it, the less likely you are going to interact with it in my experience. So making it really user-friendly, but also making it look visually appealing as superficial as that can be, I find is a really, really important factor and almost having a, a gamifying it if you will, um, is really, really important, I think, because it shows and displays progression and people like something new and fresh. And, you know, even though it might not seem much from the outside, it can have a, a big sort of psychological role. I believe in, in that respect. Yeah, no, I but agree. To, to transition more before we uh, go on to the final questions, Joss, because I'm respectful of your time. I want to talk a little bit about the powerlifting aspect now, uh, and we can talk about you know you, your role as a as a coach in terms of how you've helped your your fiance Selena, uh, you know one of the best lifters in Australia, and how it's helped you and where you're at now with with all of that training and and what what does perhaps your training look like now? What are you doing these days? I know you've got like you said a more holistic approach, and maybe walk us through what that looks like. Yeah. So powerlifting was quite new to me, I guess, when I was training for it by myself. There was, uh, I just kind of went along with what I already knew and kind of tested and field and, you know, trial and error myself to see what worked for me. Um, but yeah, definitely when I started coaching Selena, that's when I really had to try and learn specifically about powerlifting protocols and things like that, and how to be the most efficient possible way of coaching her um, to get the goal she wanted. Um, so I definitely learned a lot from a few different guys um, while we're at Hold Your Own. Um, but I would say one of the biggest things that I found from coaching Selena and also myself and seeing lots of other people competing in powerlifting as well is being able to program efficiently and enough recovery because injury is a really big concern in powerlifting. Um, if you look at a lot of the top powerlifters, they've had serious injuries at some point in their career. Um, and for me, the longer you can not get injured, the better you are going to be at powerlifting. If you have someone who hasn't been injured in the last five years, their progress is going to be a lot more consistent than if someone's had four or five injuries in those five years. Um, and programming has a big part in that. Um, I know a lot of programming, uh, powerlifting programs have multiple you know, days per week where you're squatting, benching, deadlifting, whatever it might be. So it's being able to structure that to the specific client or whoever it might be that you're coaching, whether it's yourself or someone else, and knowing kind of where their weaknesses are in their body. I know that sounds really negative and really bad, 
but for example, if someone has bad knees or someone you know has a bad back or whatever it might be, maybe taking a little bit of the squat volume out of the program and shifting that to other things that still stimulate and recruit the required muscles but don't put a lot of force and tension and shear on that area. Um, I know, for example, Selena, for example, um, she would always get flared up in her low to mid back. So we were doing a lot of posterior chain stuff, you know, stiff leg deadlifts, normal deadlifts, block pulls, whatever it might be. And after that flared up a few times, we shifted a lot of her programming to only performing posterior movements three times a week, but the volume was very low. So we completely removed stiff leg deadlifts and replaced it with, you know, glute ham raises or whatever it might be. Something that doesn't cause the strain in that area that's her weakness. Um, you know, someone who's got bad knees is maybe shifting a little bit of the squat volume across to some more deadlifts. Um, that's been my biggest learning in powerlifting specifically is sometimes more is not always better. Um, and that applies to bodybuilding as well. But definitely knowing your client and the client's body and what weaknesses they have in their body. Um, and when I say weaknesses, I don't mean like, you know, muscular weaknesses. I mean structural weaknesses. Uh, it sounds so negative, but it's, <laughs> it, it's true. Like everyone will have a structural weakness um, somewhere. And you need to try and dance around that as best as possible while still squeaking out as much improvement as possible. Um, but yeah, obviously Selena, you know, she did really well and then now she's injured, but she'll come back and that's okay. Um, but yeah, I think that's my biggest learning around powerlifting um, is being able to stay lifting for as long as possible. And if that means taking two weeks off because something's cleared up, I'm all for taking two weeks off until that feels good. Um, I'd rather have two weeks off than six months. Um, and that's my kind of view on the powerlifting standpoint. Um, and I guess my training now, uh, obviously I haven't been training super consistently, consistently with everything that's been going on in the world lately. Um, but I am quite keen to get back into powerlifting. So I myself competed in one powerlifting show um, last year. Um, it was quite fun. Did it with a few of the, the team from Hold Your Own, which is really good. Um, and I did quite enjoy it. Um, so I am quite keen to get back into that and, and start really focusing on my squat bench and bed again and, and trying to build them back up and maybe do a meet, you know, in the next six to 12 months, depending on how my training goes. Um, so my training at the moment is probably four times a week, I would say. I'm just getting back into it. Um, but once I get back into it and into the full swing of things, I'll definitely try and bump that up to five. But for me, if I can get at least four days in, I am happy with that and I can get all of my main movements and accessories in those four days. If I can get five, great, it's an added bonus, but it's definitely not easy for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's such a relationship between powerlifting and, and bodybuilding, which is you know quite popular these days for people to swing between the two, to coin the term power builder, um, a colloquial term. And I think what you said about looking at uh, the weak points perhaps or the points of improvement not necessarily a negative thing it's a realistic aspect but a lot of lifters come to this realization so it would seem 
at some point in your lifting career that slow and steady is definitely better than to go gun ho uh, in the short space of time or looking at things from a very acute point of view, it might seem better, but realistically in the long term, it isn't sustainable and it's not the better approach as we know by the maxim, the tortoise and the hare and all of that carry on. And I think it is important to recognize the points of improvement that we have. And then also the consistency. And I'm sort of, when you were speaking, I was matching up, you know, people that I'd sort of met, powerlifters that I'd met, and sort of names were coming to mind about the people who have stayed injury free do seem to make better progress because the people who are injured, it's not that they're not gifted or they can't get as strong, but because they spend so much time injured in the totality of time that just puts them on the back foot where if someone's just making these small progressions day in day out week in month year you just get to that point where you do mitigate you know the the fatigue or the chance to weaken the whole structure but then also you just increase your total training time so i think that's really important and to carry some of those things over to bodybuilding i think the skill acquisition the technical aspect is massive because if you can really understand that wow there's a lot that goes into these lifts which from a you know a standpoint of looking at it or looking at it on paper you might say oh it kind of looks easy it's just a squash the bench press the deadlift as we know it's just a complete art form and you can break it down you can build it up and you can tear it apart you'll always find little ways to improve and I think having that mindset, someone who wants to continue their training in any in any element of movement is a beautiful thing because when you can't just keep adding kilos to the bar and you're not a beginner anymore, you've got to fall in love with that process and that journey. And if you can have a more three-dimensional view of, wow, this, I could be working on this or I could be looking at that, I think that adds a lot of happiness and you know adherence over the years if, if you do want to do this for a long period of time. So I think, again, some really, really valid points. Um, I look forward to the return of Selena and maybe even yourself to the stage. I will ask you that before I move on to my next set of questions. Is that something that you consider, Josh? Is it a, a whole, like you'll never do it again? Or is it is it a possibility that you would compete again? I know Selena certainly will. I know she's still hungry to do that, but maybe maybe I'm wrong there. I don't know. What's what, what's the plans for you and Selena? Selena definitely, she definitely wants to compete again, um, but we'll just take it one step ahead of another so she had quite a bad back injury but um you know she doesn't have any any expectations of when she'll compete next but she definitely does want to get down the track um for myself i won't say no to bodybuilding but i'll say that everything will need to be aligned for me to do bodybuilding if that makes sense yes um, yes so yeah, probably not anytime soon, just the way things are going at the moment. But I, I, yeah, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say it's a hard no. Um, maybe in, you know, three, four, five, six years time, you might see me jump back up. But I definitely will want to do some powerlifting meets, um, just more, pose, more so for myself, um, to give me a goal to kind of work towards and try and achieve. Um, but yeah, that's my standpoint on the competing side of things. Bodybuilding takes a lot out of me and I don't know, I don't want to put the people that are close to me through it if I'm not going to be able to give 100% like you said at the very start because it's not just me who's impacted, it's everyone around me. So, Yeah, no, 100%. I think that's good. Um, like you said, there's probably other goals and priorities at the moment and at least with powerlifting, it's something that although it does take dedication, 
you can definitely be more adaptable and it doesn't have to affect as many areas of your life. It's a lot easier to be able to, excuse me, do a meet and turn up and have a bit of fun and enjoy the whole process and not have to sacrifice everything where bodybuilding is unfortunately not, there's just no way around of ever getting up there and being in any sort of fun condition or, you know, level of conditioning where you can do some damage, which doesn't require some serious discipline, dedication and time and a lot of resources as well. So I think that's really, you know, probably an appropriate standpoint to take. And again, things to look forward to in the future. One of the other main points I wanted to talk about before we go, Josh, is your, and we've touched base on this, but your experience as a food technologist, a food engineer, and what are the main things that you've sort of done and learned with that? And has there been any crossovers apart from obviously understanding nutrition at a more specific level um, that you've taken across from coaching or vice versa, what you learned from perhaps training people at the fine end of the pencil and then bringing that into a, I guess, a commercial space where you're creating, you know, these, I guess, these recipes or these flavors, these formulas, if you will, um, at your workplace. Cause I know we've talked about that um, a little bit and it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun job by the sounds of it. Uh, <laughs> So I was trying not to let it slip, but basically it's kind of a bit counterproductive, I guess. But um, yeah, so the industry that I work in is is, is uh, dessert and beverage. Um, so oh, yeah. on a day-to-day basis, <laughs> I make you know, new flavors or new products for frappes and ice cream and soft serve and things like that. Um, but I think the biggest thing that working in that industry has helped with is it might seem quite simple and I know I've already raised it before, but is definitely understanding nutritional panels and labels and ingredients and correlating that across and being able to explain that to clients quite simply and effectively. Um, Cause obviously I'm looking at them all day, every day and it kind of becomes second nature to me. And so I need to try and be able to make that concise and as simple as possible for clients who potentially have never even read a nutritional panel before. Um, so that's probably been one of the biggest helps, I would say. Um, I mean, the carryover from coaching people to the industry I'm in, not an awful lot, but I will say that I kind of, intuitive thing or fun thing that we have noticed over time is that even though people are very fitness orientated and very conscious of what they put into their bodies quite often if someone and you'll probably agree with this if someone's going to have dessert or something or treat themselves they're going to go all the way they're not going to half-ass their treat um so there's kind of this all or nothing mentality going on at the moment um, and the, that gap is being bridged a little bit with all of these, you know, protein ice creams or, you know, healthy beverages and things like that. But still, whether or not you're into fitness or you're not into fitness, quite often you'll go for, you know, that full fat, full sugar, really delicious ice cream while you're out. You won't get the, you know, low fat, low sugar stuff in the corner of the cabinet. Um, so that's something that people need to keep in mind. And that's, that's something that I try and incorporate with clients as I say, look, if you are going to 
store off your diet, or if you do want to have something during the week that you allocate macros to, make sure you enjoy it. Don't half-ass it. Like don't don't have something and then eat it and afterwards kind of feel, oh, that was good, but I still kind of crave, you know, whatever it might be. Like make sure you 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 fit that into your diet. Make sure you make it work because you will feel better and you will enjoy it more than compromising on your one treat each week, for example. Um, so that's something interesting that I've noticed over time as well. It's, it's not an all or nothing mentality, but if people are going to treat themselves, they want to treat themselves properly, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Oh, it does. I'll let me just pry into that one then for a second, because I notice, especially with the female population that compete, and just because they obviously generally run on a lot lower calories. And I think the pressure to look a certain way is a little bit greater than it is as a man, although we we want to look good. I just think there's, based on social media, there is an expectation for females, which plays heavily in the psyche. But that is a story of its own. But when it comes to foods, I find a lot of females are really, they've got a really bad habit of constantly filling their calories with what I call filler foods or fake foods or like the half-assed, the not quite full strength versions. And what I mean by that is not necessarily choosing a lower fat option, but choosing a lower calorie option. And what I mean by this is choosing these foods, which are comprised of a lot of sugar alcohols, a lot of artificial ingredients to the point where they desensitize the palate and they can play havoc with the gut and whatnot as well. But again, they just leave you dissatisfied um, over time. And they can actually inhibit your ability to then lose sensitivity for whole foods and, and normal foods. And something that I believe in as a coach is, you know, obviously, depending on where you're at, yes, you might choose a lower calorie option, but still choose a food which is real based off mainly whole food. So if you're going to go for ice cream, like, okay, you may be getting a skim milk version, or you might get a flavor, which is not loaded with cookies and caramel and all of this, but you're still eating the real thing. Although, Hey, yeah, you might not be able to have a, a whole box of a tub of halo top, but then when you look at the ingredients in those things and the macronutrient profile, and it's incorrect as well, as we know, I don't think it's worth it. And, um, and then obviously if you, you know, you're in comp prep, obviously you're, you're, palate has changed uh, it is a bit biased towards even things that are not good tasting good as we know and then you go back and then you're like how did i eat that so as a food engineer can can you maybe extrapolate on that a little bit and what these ingredients are and perhaps if there are any that uh, affect um you know the body in a negative way or the main differences between the two from from that sort of I guess, more in-depth standpoint of, of engineering these foods because this is what you do obviously every day and perhaps giving yeah. some people other options or what your recommendation would be? Look, I definitely agree with you that I would rather eat less of something that is real. I don't, I don't like that word real, but less yeah. of something that is real compared to more of a less calorie-dense Created food. I don't know. I don't know the specific words to, to explain it properly, but but it would. I guess um, it would be engineered, then, wouldn't it? To a degree, because yeah, technically, it is yeah. it's engineered. I guess a lot of products now that are let's let's call them engineered to be lower in calories, like you know, lower calorie noodles or 
rice or pasta or whatever it might be. Um, some of them are great, don't get me wrong. Some of them, they, they just use alternatives to make the same product, whether it's you know more protein instead of carbohydrates or whatever it might be. But some of these products are bolstered with a lot of fiber um, and that can cause an issue um, from a few standpoints. Obviously in your gut, obviously you don't want to be consuming too much fiber. Um, and there's, there's varying different types of fiber as well, um, which isn't particularly disclaimed on labels. Um, so it is a way that companies and food labels can be kind of hidden um, and the true calorific value kind of hidden away and not displayed easily to understand. Um, and a lot of these fibers as well aren't actually, I've got a pet peeve that in Australia, the fiber isn't included in the carbohydrate total in labels, whereas in America it is. I know I've explained this to you. And that's my pet peeve is that people will get these protein bars or, you know, slender noodles or whatever it might be. And look at, look at the carbs and be like, oh, there's only five grams of carbs per serve. But then if you actually look at the carbohydrate total, which is listed underneath of that, it might say, you know, 15 grams. So really, you're not just having five grams of carbohydrates because fiber is a formal carbohydrate and it does absorb water and it does, it does have calorific value. Yeah, it's not the same as the carbohydrates themselves. It is a little bit less. But it still needs to be factored into your diet and a lot of people aren't realizing that. Um, they don't think what these products are made up of. It can't just be made up of air, like it's, it's, there's something in there. And generally a lot of the time it's fiber. Um, and I think people need to be cautious of that and understand how to incorporate that into their diet and just be, just be cognizant of it. I mean, obviously, you know, you can have, you can have these foods from time to time. And I don't think it's gonna, gonna make a significant impact on your body or your diet or nutritional um, composition or anything like that. But if you're having these every day and that's all you're eating, then I think you need to kind of take a step back and reevaluate and say, hey, maybe I should just have some rice instead of whatever the product is that you're consuming. Um, I definitely agree. And I definitely personally would rather have less whole foods than, you know, bolster my meals with kilos of Slendia noodles or whatever it might be, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, fiber is definitely a, a key thing that a lot of companies have been using to, to get around legislation and, and, you know, make nutritional panels more difficult for the general consumer to understand. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of, um, perhaps misdemeanor and misdirection in that. And I think this is where the education comes from. I feel so passionate about this, Josh, because you know, I, I, I was one, I am one for flexible dieting, but it's something that sort of hindered, I think my performance for my first comp prep, but again, a great lesson learned in trying to be too complex and have too much of the, these low calorie filler foods rather than just being a little bit hungry. But uh, I think the paradox of that and the irony is that even though you might eat less of the whole foods, they can sometimes actually fill you up more, not from a necessarily a volume standpoint, but from a satiety standpoint, because again, they, you know, they, they are better absorbed by the body and we are you know, more aligned to utilize these foods. Where having these foreign substances, and I was listening to a podcast the other day, 
I think it was with Gabrielle Fondero and a couple of others, and it was a round table. And they were talking about, I think it was the sugar alcohols or it was, it was something or another, another digression of fiber. I don't know if it was an insoluble fiber or, or something. It was really specific. They were really going into the nuts and bolts. And it was how these certain foods that have come out over the years, especially in places like America who have just the plethora of things on offer you can get anything um and how it would just completely destroy your guts um and just you would be left on the toilet with you know um <laughs> not not a, not a good scenario and i think i see that with a lot of um even athletes in general or people who do compete it kind of ruins them a little bit because they're always looking to find foods to fill their nutritional you know uh, preferences or they're always trying to increase the volume where at some point it's not about that and they're always bloated and toilet time isn't good and it's like man it's such an easy fix but we get so drawn into that go on what were you going to say i think another key thing as well is obviously this is very specific to bodybuilding you know prepping for a bodybuilding show but you know 100 grams of rice has a certain amount of carbohydrates in that and your body will absorb and utilize x percentage of that if you have the same amount of carbohydrates but from some fiber-bolstered source of some weird and wonderful thing, your body's not going to process that the same as it will the rice, and you're not going to get the same visual appearance on stage. That's something that um, I tell a lot of clients that in the last few weeks leading to the show, we need to really keep your foods quite simple and straightforward so your body can efficiently utilize the energy um, to, to, to fuel their workouts and also to fuel their muscles to, to look the best that they can on stage. And that's something else people need to really consider. If you're carb loading or whatever it is on, you know, protein bars and whatever else, you're not going to, you're not going to look, you're not going to look as good as you can look. Um, go have some broccoli or, or, you know, have some vegetables or, or things like that to bolster your meals rather than these, you know, I want to say artificially made products, but that's not, not what they are. But, you know, these products that are engineered to be um, special and, and calorifically um, less dense. Yeah, 100%. Definitely a hard lesson learned and one I'll never forget. And I think it can also give you an edge. I mean, even for me with um, now, you know, obviously not, not um, in a comp rep state at all and eating a lot of food, I still keep it simple. I still think variety is important within whole foods. I think it's good because you obviously want to have a nice, even, you know, micronutrient profile and you don't want to just be like, okay, I'm just eating this and this. It's like, yes, have variety, but you know, the basics are the best. Keep those main whole foods in your body a lot more consistent. It will feel better. It will run better. It, and again, that is a is a beautiful beautiful irony that you can have an edge by creating simplicity and sticking to the basics so i think that, that's an amazing thing um before we go josh a couple of rapid fire questions um please sir a bit more fun a bit more light-hearted before my final question the first one is as a food engineer my man and a man who is well versed in nutrition what would be your absolute favorite meal to have and this could be an appetizer it could be dinner dessert can be a drink as well or it could just be just one main thing what really gets the juices flowing for you i'm pretty simple just a good old spaghetti bolognese <laughs> i love me pasta and mint. i i'm not kidding during 2015 i think i ate pasta rice and mints six days a week 
for 20 weeks just because Spag I enjoyed ball. it. Just not, not, not because I needed to, just because I enjoyed it. I'm very simple. Yeah. Was that when you were doing the 500 grams of mints with, with yeah. the pasta? That was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beast. I remember those days. That was good. But it's true though. I think, um, like for example, I, I'm hooked on the old, I make a Thai green curry. It's, it's pretty good for what it is, but man, I just don't, I'm not sick of it. So people are like, are you still eating that? I'm like, yeah, I'm not sick of it yet. If it's not broken, yeah. don't fix it. You know, like yeah. keep it simple. Um, all right. Uh, and my next question is if you could have a superpower, what would it be and why would you have it? Uh, probably it'd be a fly. Um, it's just so versatile. You can go anywhere. Yeah. Especially with COVID, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd love to fly. It'd be awesome. Yeah, I think that's an ever popular one as well. I think it's a beautiful one. All right. And conversely, because we have been in COVID, I think this one's a little bit more appropriate. If you could wake up anywhere in the world tomorrow, where would it be and why? Anywhere in the world you could wake up, where would it be and why? You could take anyone with you as well. You can take Selena. Where would you wake up? It's a tough one. It's a good EA. Um, yeah, it's a tough one because I, I love home. <laughs> <laughs> it's a home, boy. <laughs> I don't know. I've always wanted to go to Italy, wake up in Italy. Mate, have your spag bowl. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good one on the Amalfi coast, mate. What do you want? Spag bowl for breakfast, mate. They wouldn't bat an eyelid. Um, and, and my final question, Josh, which I ask all my guests is, could you identify a fear that you've had in your life? It can be a big fear, can be a small fear, what it was, how you overcame it and what value you took from overcoming it um probably probably the fear of fear of failure to be honest i think that's what drives me so much when i do want to do well in a, in a specific area um go back to 2015 i didn't want to fail i didn't want to not achieve my goals so i did absolutely everything i can and, and could do to achieve them um and in my head if i do everything i can to try and achieve my goals, even if I don't reach them, I'm okay with that because I know I've done everything I possibly can in my power to try and get there. Um, and that's how I kind of rationalize it in my head. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that seems to be a common trend with a lot of guests I have on and people who are quite driven. They're driven by the fear of failure, which in and of itself is another paradox, but definitely... Mm -hmm something I think a lot of people can empathize with in, in, in this scenario or in this field, if you like, which is true. But um, thank you, Josh. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for sharing some knowledge for people who want to find out more about you or follow along. I know you're not massive on social media. You're a quiet achiever, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> a very intelligent human being. Where can people follow along or if they do want to contact you for coaching or reach out with any questions, where's the best places? Um, so you can go to the Hold Your Own website. Um, so I do all my coaching through Hold Your Own and, and that branding. Um, and you can contact them there. Or you can just go straight through to my Instagram. As you said, I don't, I don't post super frequently, but I am on it. Um, my Instagram is just uh, Josh Hamp with double O. So, yeah. Awesome, dude. And I will, as always, guys, for those listening, I'll put those links in the description below and thank you again josh i really appreciate your time 
And for those of you listening or watching on YouTube, make sure to share, like, comment, subscribe, all that. I've got to say it, it's all part of it. Leave a rating and a review if you're not driving and it's safe to do so. And of course, we'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. And in the meantime, as always, guys, stay fearless.